Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined as always by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off as normal, Simon, by talking about the markets. And uh, well, the week started off quite well, but uh, unfortunately, uh, we're recording this on uh, Friday. And uh, yesterday, there was a bit of a setback with some rather shocking uh, economic data out from the States. Uh, Perhaps you can fill us in on this. That's right. Well, just to put some numbers on where we are at the moment. So for the first four trading days of the week, the investment companies sector was up 2.2%. And that represented an outperformance of the wider UK market, up 2.1% in the form of the FTSE All Share. We've also seen the sector average discount narrow in over those first four days from 4.7% to 3.7%. But you're absolutely right. The news that came through on Thursday impacted the US market. Uh, was that In fact, inflation levels in the US had hit 7.5% in January. That's the highest level we've seen for four decades. I think 1982 was the last time. I'm sure you'll remember it well uh, when we last hit that kind of level. But what that's meant is that there's a kind of big discussion now underway in terms of how will the Federal Reserve react to that level of inflation. Clearly, uh, we all knew it was going to be high, but perhaps not quite as high as that. So a lot of speculation that we're going to see rate rises perhaps even sooner than we thought. Uh, I think the market was kind of pricing in a 25 basis points increase in March. Some people are now suggesting we might see a surprise rise in February. Other people are kind of betting on a 50 basis points hike in March. I think Goldman Sachs have come out and they believe they're going to be seven 25 basis point hikes this year alone. So a lot of talk about interest rate rises. That's clearly unsettling the market. And that's on the back of a strong jobs report from the US, so basically higher employment than was perhaps expected. In addition to all that, we obviously have the situation in Ukraine with the tensions on the border there with Russia. That's not showing any obvious signs of being resolved in the short term, but a lot of hot air about that. And yet we're getting results from uh, companies as well, a a number of which have come in perhaps ahead of expectations. So BP this week, which um, a lot of people will have exposure to either directly or indirectly, they reported incredibly strong profits. In fact, uh, there were a number of calls for a windfall tax in appreciation of the level of money they're generating in that particular period. And and another kind of uh, big bellwether stock such as Disney in the US beat expectations as theme parks reopened and their subscription service continues to do very well. So we have a slight disconnect here between the, the earnings that are coming through from many of these companies and the state of play in the wider world. Yes, I mean, that inflation number is pretty shocking. I can remember the last time inflation was at this level, but it was an awfully long time ago. <laughs> and it's not something to be taken lightly. 7.5% is a, is a significant figure. And I mean, it's coming at a time when, as you say, the employment figures in the US are looking very, very strong. It does mean that we are approaching a crunch of some sort. And all, as you say, all the eyes are on whether the Fed will do more or less. And then secondary, whether or not the market in turn will start to change its expectations uh, in response to what the Federal Reserve does. So it's uh, it's going to be one of those first and second order effect years, I think. We're going to have to see how that plays out. But uh, as you said, the investment trust sector itself has done a little bit better so far this week. I imagine some of those gains will reverse a little bit uh, today if the markets continue to behave the way they are. But uh, it has been interesting this week. I mean, I've noticed that uh, in terms of some of the better performers this week, 
we've actually seen something of a comeback from the growthy type investment trusts, the Bailey Gifford Trust, the Technology Trust. They all seem to have picked up a little bit this week. Perhaps they've just uh, been oversold a little bit because the moves have been so dramatic. What's your thoughts on that and the whole issue of kind of style rotation? What, do you, what sort of feedback are you getting from uh, your clients, Simon? No, it's a very good point. A lot of discussion, normally actually focused around those higher growth names. So you mentioned some of the Bailey Gifford names, some of the growth capital names, Chrysalis Investments would be a case in point as well. You know, What should they do? Should they uh, look to reduce their positions? Should they just hold them or should they add to them? So a real debate ongoing. Everyone has their own views clearly. And that's often a reflection of their investment time horizon as well, to be perfectly honest. Um, so for some investors who are quite happy to take a very long-term view, they might take quite a different angle than perhaps people a bit more focused on their kind of quarterly performance numbers, as indeed many uh, institutional fund managers are. So there is a bit of a disconnect there, but you're totally right. We have seen, or we were seeing certainly until this little bit of a blip in the market again, we were seeing a recovery for some of those higher growth names this week. So I mean, there were opportunities to buy things like Scottish Mortgage if you took the long-term view at a discount, which hasn't been the case for a little while. I was, well, it's, it's come and gone in the last uh, 12 months, I should say. We had the same kind of experience uh, a year ago, didn't we, in the first quarter. So interesting markets, as always. Let's uh, move on and talk about some corporate activity. And we're going to kick off with uh, River and Mercantile, a UK microcap, ticker RMMC. And what is the news there, Simon? Yeah, so the board of River Mercantile UK Microcap announced this week, or they issued a statement this week, noting that George Enzer, who's the funds manager, he's, he's been the investment manager on this one since 2018, he'd actually stepped up to manage the ES River Mercantile UK Equity Smaller Companies Fund. So that's quite a large open-ended fund. With that, it's about 670 million or so. And that followed the resignation of a chap called Dan Hambury, from River and Mercantile Asset Management. So this was a news away from the investment trust sector, but the board of River and Mercantile UK Microcap stated, and this is a quote, it is entirely confident that this additional responsibility will in no way detract from George's commitment to RMMC or his ability to continue to deliver strong performance for shareholders. So they're just noting this development. It's worth saying that obviously um, River and Mercantile Asset Management has been in the news. There's been a takeover uh, has been confirmed. Martin Gilbert's Asset Co. That's been announced. It's been ongoing. And it will sit alongside Saracen Fund Managers as part of Asset Co.'s interest. I mean, in terms of George Enzo, he's done a good job, to be honest, on River Mercantile UK Microcap. He, since he took over in February 2018, the NAV is up 49% on a total return basis since that time, compared with a, a rise of 31% for the index. But the open-ended fund that he's now responsible for is, is quite a different beast from the microcap fund, I mean, it only has 2% in, in microcap. So there's just this kind of issue of, you know, can he be responsible? Can he continue to do a good job on both vehicles? Yes, I think that is an interesting question. I mean, he's a relatively young man whose career is obviously on the ascendancy. And this is sometimes what happens in fund management groups. You find that a young fund manager has come in and done well, and then he's given more responsibilities. And eventually, he has a lot of money to run. That uh, seems to be happening here. So it is quite a big step up. And I guess there will be some concerns about, you know, whether he can keep his eye on the ball of the microcap at the same time as uh, managing this much larger, uh, smaller company, open-ended fund. Has there been any kind of market reaction to this news? Not in terms of the rating on the microcap fund. I mean, it's on about a 9% discount or so at the moment. I mean, over the last 12 months, it's averaged an 8% discount. It, it has moved around a little bit. So it's been at a, a premium 
fleetingly during that period, up to 4%, and uh, has been as wide as 16%. So not an obvious reaction. Well, he's certainly a name to watch and certainly of interest uh, in this particular uh, investment trust, which has done very well recently, has it not? It's done extremely well. And as you say, for a microcap trust to be come into trade roughly around par is quite uh, unusual. Though it does have this policy of restricting its size, does it not, to preserve the, uh, as it were, the uh, the purity of the mandate. Okay, let's move on and talk about um, strategic equity capital, ticker SEC, where we know there's been talk of a combination with Odyssean Investment Trust. What's the latest on that one? Yeah, so again, really interesting development. Um, the board of strategic equity capital came out this week. And just to remind people, actually, back in December, so just ahead of Christmas, 23rd of December, proposals came out from a Decian uh, investment trust about a combination between the two investment trusts. Odysian would have been the ongoing vehicle. And at that stage, Odysian, I think, said that 33% of the share capital of the register of SEC were in favour or supportive of the move. So clearly, there have been a number of discussions going on for the last five or six weeks or so. The Board of Strategic Equity Capital have come out this week and said that further discussions with Odysseum regarding a combination will not proceed. However, what they've done is they've announced a series of measures really focused on tackling the discount of SEC. So just to run through those in quick order, there's going to be a 10% tender offer in early April that will be done at NAV less costs, and that replaces a previously announced November tender offer. In addition to that, there'll be a buyback program for additional 9% of current assets, and that will be done uh, at a discount. I think this says uh, wider than 5% or so. So there'll be an ongoing support for the discount. And then in addition to that, from the, the financial year 2023, they will have a policy whereby 50% of proceeds from profitable realizations will be returned through buyback. So this idea that there will be ongoing support for the rating. Gresham House, who have been the investment manager on this one since May 2020, they've committed to invest about £5 million in SEC's shares, uh, and that will be done by June next year, June 2023. And they've also agreed to uh, reinvest 50% of the management fee in the shares as well, I think at a similar kind of discount level. On top of all that, if that wasn't enough, there will be a 100% realisation opportunity in 2025 that we're still waiting for more details of that. So the board have put together this package. They've got letters of intent supporting those proposals from shareholders representing about 26% of the share capital. The board of Odysseum Investment Trust, they came out with their own announcement a little while after that one dropped. They noted the decision uh, not to pursue the combination. And they said that they believe that the alternative proposals that SEC had come up with, and I quote, represent a missed opportunity to create a leading and growing premium investment trust of greater scale, differentiated from the wider UK small cap sector. Right. Well, there's an awful lot there. What does it all add up to? I mean, essentially, um, is this the end of this particular one, at least for the time being? Uh, there seems to be some slight lack of clarity about you know, which camp has uh, the greater proportion of investors or whether indeed there's some who are in both camps. What do you think about this? I mean, is this, is, this is enough to uh, put this on the back burner for the time being, do you think? I mean, they seem absolutely determined. Gresham House obviously making a very big uh, attempt to uh, keep hold of this particular trust. What, uh, what do you make of it all, Simon? 
Yeah, so I think there's a few things going on here. I mean, number one, and this is something that we talked about in terms of a general trend across the investment trust sector, that this idea that actually mergers should be something that the boards consider, particularly on the on the smaller vehicles, this idea of creating larger, more viable and attractive vehicles. And we're going to come on to talk about an instance of, of such a thing shortly. And it's been a trend we've seen, a growing trend over the last few years. So this flies in the face of that a little bit. But that said, I think the board of SEC have clearly looked at this very closely. The fact that there wasn't a kind of swift rebuke, they've taken five or six uh, weeks, and one can only assume that there have been some uh, quite serious and detailed ongoing discussions around this. I think the board of SEC are probably minded to give Kenwooton a chance. So Kenwooton has been responsible for the portfolio since September 2020, so a relatively short period of time. But since he took over the NAV of SECs up about 48%, um, it's worth noting Odysseans a little bit ahead of that, up 52%, but still up 48% is, is certainly a good start to his time running this mandate. And I think by returning an amount of capital, quite a significant amount of capital, plus that full liquidity event in 2025, so only three plus years away, it kind of gives shareholders the kind of comfort that there is a liquidity event coming up on the horizon. So I think these proposals are quite cleverly constructed or they've been well thought through. And I think they are shareholder friendly. I think for Odyssey, clearly they are disappointed. I mean, they're sitting today with a market cap of about just short of 160 million. So not insubstantial at all, but you know, clearly they thought this would represent a significant leg up in, in terms of their assets. One of the issues that SEC has going forward by kind of providing these returns of capital is that obviously there is a likelihood here that they will shrink. Obviously, it depends how the underlying portfolio performs. But assuming for the moment that they they don't see NAV growth, then their assets at the moment of about 220 million will drop to about 180 million. So, you know, there will be a kind of natural shrinkage there. So that's what they're up against. They've got to kind of get that balance between not contracting too much and therefore kind of dropping off the radar of ongoing shareholders. So, you know, quite an involved situation. But I think you've got to give a credit to both boards to, to looking at this quite closely and taking these proposals seriously. Yes, I think it's fair to say also that um, sort of independent observers might say, well, that Ken Wooden's a good uh, farm manager, got a good track record anyway, uh, not obviously operating in this particular trust because he's only been there for a, a short while, but he has a good record and hasn't really had a chance to prove himself over a full, you know, a sensible period. I think that's a fair point out of equity one has to acknowledge that. But equally, uh, I think you're right. I think it seems to me that the board of SEC at least have, have done a lot of things to at least try and, uh, if you will, give themselves a chance to maintain their independence. But um, if it doesn't work out, then there obviously will be a reckoning in due course. And uh, meanwhile, the decision will presumably be continue to put together its uh, its decent track record. So in terms of, in terms of the share price then of strategic equity capital, ticker SEC, how has that been performing? Is it still at a discount? What's, what's the market reaction been? Yeah, so I mean, over the last 12 months, it's averaged about a 14% discount, but we did see a re-rating after those proposals or uh, after the announcement back in December of a combination. Um, and at the moment, I've got it on about a 10% discount. So clearly, it's going to be underpinned to a greater or lesser extent by those proposals to return capital. And it's worth noting they're all subject to shareholder approval as well. Odyssean, I've got it on about a 3% premium at the moment. So it is more highly rated. And I think that probably reflects the job that the investment management team have done there since they launched that particular fund. And they have been able to issue shares. So they've been issuing shares over the last few months. So they will clearly, one would assume, be focused on growing not just the assets in terms of performance, but being able to maintain that rating. 
Well, if you believe in uh, in competition, as we all do, I think, then this is going to be an interesting one to watch to see how these two horses perform from here and whether or not the board has made the right decision in the case of SEC or indeed uh, whether we don't know what would have happened if uh, Odyssean had succeeded in taking this over, how, whether its performance would have been affected or not. But uh, all interesting ones to watch as we go forward. Let's just quickly uh, catch up on the situation at Third Point Investors. That's ticker TPOU the Dan Loeb hedge fund outfit, where there's been, as we know, quite a lot of acrimony and a lot of uh, argy-bargy. What is anything uh, new on that front? Well, there are no new letters this week. No letters have been penned, but there is an announcement out from the board and they've noted the timing of a general meeting that's required by the shareholder requisition. We've had a chat about that before. That has got to be held by the 8th of March. That said, the board expects to be able to update shareholders on board developments in the near future. So there's a little bit of a kind of watch this space announcement. Yes, as I recall, I mean, the dissident shells have been called there trying to put somebody on the board, are they not? And uh, uh, we'll have to see how that goes. And of course, there's been a, a change in the chairmanship as well. The chairman resigned. Let's move on then and on the subject of consolidation in the investment trust sector. Let's move on and talk about what's happening with UK mortgages, ticker UKML. And another specialist debt trust, 24 Income Fund, ticker TFIF. Can you bring us uh, up to date on this one? That's right. So the announcement this week was for proposals for an all-share merger. And in fact, those terms have been agreed between the two boards of UK Mortgages and 24 Income Fund. And that's obviously subject to shareholder approval. But effectively, the merger will be via a scheme of reconstruction for UK mortgages with a transfer of assets to 24 income fund and shareholders in UK mortgages will receive ordinary shares in 24 income at a 1.25% premium to NAV. So the proposed acquisition value of UK mortgages comes in about, or it was estimated to be 83.32p, which is quite a precise estimate. And that represented apparently a 5% to the latest premium and a 15% premium to the share price just ahead of this announcement. So shareholders representing 47% of UK mortgages shares have provided written support for the scheme. And the earnings of the combined entity are expected to underpin an annual dividend target of at least 6p. So the guidance is that the scheme is expected to complete by the end of the current financial quarter. But obviously, we're waiting for more details. So I think it's fair to say that these two trusts are managed by the same management company. I'm right about that, am I not? So this is really a question of putting two debt funds, which aren't doing quite the same thing, though, are they, putting them together? No, that's absolutely right. So they're both managed by 24, funnily enough. And there is a bit of a crossover. So if you look at 24 income, it does have some exposure to kind of UK mortgages, but it's a smaller part. It's not a pure play. I mean, it's worth noting that UK mortgages, it's had a little bit of a, an up and down ride. Um, I think its share price went down as low as about 40p back in March 2020. It reduced its uh, dividend, it's worth noting, back in July 2019, and then had to reduce again back in April 2020. When we saw all those kind of mortgage holidays, they directly impacted the, the earnings stream. And we also saw a bid from M&G, back in July 2020 for UK mortgages. That came in at 70p. And at the time, the board obviously considered it, but uh, made various promises, including that they said they would consult shareholders about a managed wind down uh, if they were still trading on a discount by the end of 2022. So there is an element that this fund was kind of uh, in play a little bit. And this is the solution that they've come up with to merge 
UK mortgages in with 24 income. I mean, 24 income is, is a larger fund. I think they've got assets about 570 million. So by putting the two together, that takes it through 720 million or so. And this uh, expected annual dividend of at least 6p, I mean, assuming that the share price of 24 income fund doesn't get materially hit by this, what kind of uh, yield are we looking at then prospectively on this one? So the yield on 24, I've got it on a historic basis, uh, comes in about 5.6. I've got the share price of 24 at the moment, about £1.14. So 6p on that, I think it equates to about 5.3%, though your mental mass might be a little bit stronger than mine. But it's that kind of 5 plus percent yield. And in terms of the UK mortgage shareholders, I mean, they say you, they've got 47% of them have provided written support for the scheme. Uh, presumably, that means that this is going to go through, is it not? Um, that's a very good starting point. I mean, one would assume that they will be quite minded to support the proposals, and not least if you look at the way that the share price reacted to this. So we saw a big jump up in, in the share price, which was trading below that 83p level. As I mentioned, we had that takeover bid from 70p, but it's, it really has been re-rated on the back of it. So I've got it on a small premium at the moment, but it has averaged about an 8% discount over the previous 12 months. Yeah, so that does seem to certainly suggest that this one is not going to be uh, too controversial and will go through. It means we've lost one more specialist trust, but in the interests of consolidation, I think, and given the performance, that's not a total surprise. So let's talk about fundraising. There hasn't been a lot fundraising this week, but there has been one significant and successful issue, very successful issue. Yeah, that's right. So LXI REIT had already decided that they were looking to raise additional capital, and they were talking about £125 million. So earlier in the week, they came out and said, actually, were minded to increase that £125 million limit to £250 million. And that reflected strong level of support that they were seeing from investors at that stage. And they also believed that the pipeline, which I think initially they said was about £270 million, they believed actually it's probably nearer to about £350 million. So later in the week, they came out and they announced they duly had raised that £250 million. And in fact, that was oversubscribed despite being increased. So new shares will be issued at 142p per share. That represents about a 3% premium to their end of 2021 NAV. Those new shares will begin trading on Monday, on Valentine's Day, on the 14th of February. And it effectively takes the fund's net assets up to about 1.3 billion. But just to remind people, this is obviously a, a property fund, but it's kind of USP, as it were, is inflation-protected income from long-let and index-linked UK property. So you can see why uh, it might be proving popular in the current climate with inflation rising, people looking for ways to protect themselves. But it has done very well, this trust. I think I've noted it's coming up to its fifth anniversary this month, uh, fifth annual anniversary, that is. So uh, it's been there for five years, always a, a good time for trust to take stock. And um, well, just fill us on its, uh, what its performance has been since it came to the market. Yeah, well, certainly I've got the five-year numbers in share price total return terms. I've got it up 81% over that five-year period. So that will compare quite favourably against, uh, if not all, certainly the majority of UK commercial property companies. So success for LXI REIT. Let's move on to some results now. And let's start with another very interesting and increasingly popular trust. This is BlackRock Throgmorton Trust, ticker THRG which has uh, produced its annual results, has been on a bit of a roll for the last couple of years, I think it's fair to say. How do the latest results look? Well, they're still rolling on, to be honest. These were results for the year to the 30th of November, 2021. Their NAV total return was up 37%. 
That compared with an increase of about 24.5% for their benchmark, which was the NSC plus AIM index. In share price times, even a little bit better, actually, just short of 39% as their dividend increased. But a good, strong period for Frogmorton Trust or BlackRock Frogmorton Trust. So Dan Whitestone has been responsible for this one uh, since March 2015. So, you know, what worked for him in the period? It was stocks such as Watches of Switzerland, Impacts Asset Management, Electro Components, Tatan Asset Management and YouGov. Uh, there's always a few detractors and Games Workshop. Chegg and uh, Avon Protection didn't do quite so well for them. It's worth noting actually in the results as well that the board has given the investment team the authority to make private investments of up to about 2.5% of net assets without prior board approval. So this is this idea that obviously probably Bailey Gifford are the best examples of this idea that companies are staying private for longer in order to access these ideas before they come to the market. You need to be able to uh, invest in private companies. And so Frogmorton Trust are going to dip their toe in the water in that regard. So it'll be interesting to see how they go with that. But Dan Whitestone writes a good investment manager's report. So there was a lot of chat about corporate Darwinism. That's been one of his themes over the last few years. Companies, how they've fared during this pandemic period uh, and how the strongest are really pushing forward. But also some very good commentary about the impact of inflation on businesses. So, you know, we talk a lot about inflation at a kind of macro level. He's talking about it in terms of the results and the companies that he's talking to day by day. And he makes the point that actually, you know, for the kind of higher growth or the higher quality companies that he believes he's backing, it's less of a problem. Conversely, those low margin business are really going to struggle, in his view, in that kind of higher inflationary environment. Yes, I think it's fair to say he's still at the top of the five-year performance figures as far as smaller company investment trusts are concerned, at least according to the AIC data. And they've been issuing quite a lot of shares. I think they issued, what, well over 100 million last year, I think, in uh, in secondary issuance. I mean, he's definitely one of the market leaders in this in this particular space. Yeah, that's right. So £125 million worth of shares issued in that 12-month uh, period. And yeah, just to put some numbers around it, NAV total return over five years up 97%. That compares with a kind of weighted average for that UK small cap peer group of about 52% over that five-year period, so significant outperformance of his peers. And in share price terms, actually even stronger, up 142% share price total return over five years. But a lot of that's obviously come from the re-rating, the fact it would have been at a discount at the start of that period and, and now finds itself on a premium. So for those of you who follow the Moneymakers Circle this week, in addition to all our normal summary of all the news and uh, discount movements and things like that, we have a profile of Fidelity Special Values. Alex writes, UK All Companies Trust, which you may be interested in looking at and is certainly uh, done very well recently. And in addition to that, I've done a Q&A with Russell Napier. If you were feeling, you know, weren't feeling too cheerful before, you probably won't be feeling too cheerful after you hear this. He's a, a well-known global investment strategist, but uh, he has some very strong views about where this is all ending. So if you, you know, you want to see our old views, this is the one perhaps you should be thinking about a little bit. It certainly, uh, I don't think, will be uh, make you feel like a, a million dollars, but uh, I do recommend, nonetheless, it takes uh, all sides to make an argument, as we know. And this is a very interesting time in the taking the long historical view, which is he is a uh, something of a market historian as well. If you take the long historical view, it is interesting to see where we like to end up. He makes a parallel with what happened after the Second World War. So if you're interested in that kind of uh, uh, long-term historical perspective, this one might be for you. So we're going to move on and talk about overseas results now. And we're going to start off with another BlackRock Trust. This is the BlackRock Sustainable American Income Trust, ticker BRSA. And they've had some annual results. 
That's right. These were annual results for the year to the 31st of October, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 36%. And that represented an outperformance. Their benchmark was up 35.6%. That's the Russell 1000 value index. In share price terms, actually did a little bit better. They're up 42.4% as their discount narrowed to about 4% or so. Their revenue per share, so they are a, an equity income fund, their revenue per share came in at 4.06p. That was down from 6.65p from their previous financial year, but the dividend has been maintained at 8p, and so very much on an enhanced dividend policy, this one. And actually, it's worth noting that during this financial year, this particular fund changed its mandate, or the mandate evolved, really. Shareholders back in July last year voted to incorporate ESG objectives into the investment approach. It's all about sustainable investing. Uh, That's had a bit of a knock-on impact in terms of the shape of the portfolio. It's got more of a mid-cap bias there. The number of holdings has come down. Um, Previously, it was between about 80 and 120. Now it's more between about 30 and 60. I think it's probably at the higher end of that range at the moment. Um, They've still got a bias to higher yielding value stocks, and that probably did quite well for them in the period. But they're not um, involved in covered calls anymore. So they were involved in option writing to kind of increase the revenue. So there has been a bit of a a change of approach with this particular one uh, and a change of name as well, it's worth noting. So we're still relatively early days into that process. Yes, I mean, this is one of only a handful of uh, investment trusts we have in the uh, North American sector. It's always been a very difficult area for investment trusts, UK investment trusts, to do well. And this one, I mean, it's not too large, this trust, is it? I mean, do you think it has a kind of big future or not? Well, I've got it at a market cap of about 164 million, and it's trading on a discount of about 3% or so at the moment. I mean, obviously, we've talked quite a lot over podcasts previous uh, about ESG, and there aren't that many kind of genuine kind of pure play ESG investment trusts out there. So every investment manager now that you'll you'll hear a presentation from will talk about ESG. There's an obligatory slide in every deck that you get from a presentation. But in terms of kind of people that actually have taken it that one stage further, there aren't too many examples in the investment trust world. This is one, and it's interesting to see that they have been re-rated on the back of that. So that's maybe the way forward for this particular one. It's differentiated itself by going down this route. You know, as I say, it's still relatively early days, but it'll be interesting to see if it can actually gain momentum from here. So we'll move on and talk about Brown Advisory US Smaller Companies, ticker BASC. This is uh, under this particular name, a relative newcomer. It took over a Jupiter US Smaller Companies Trust uh, not so long ago. Uh, what are their results, uh, latest results look like? Yeah, so these are interim results for the six months to the end of December last year. In that time, they generated an NAV total return. It was up about 0.9%. That compared with a decline of 0.5% for the Russell 2000 index. Did a little bit better in share price terms. It was up about 3% or so as the discount narrowed. But you're absolutely right. It's still very early days. I mean, Brown Advisory became responsible for this one back on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, 2021. And since that time, I think the NAV is down about 2.4%. The Russell 2000 is down about 4.4%. Interestingly enough, their nearest rival, the JP Morgan US Smaller Companies, that's up 2.2%, but it's still a very short time period. Uh, so it's probably too soon to say. Though I did note one thing in the results. Every uh, investment manager loves talking acronyms. There are far too many acronyms as far as I'm concerned in the investment management industry. But I saw a new one in the results and it was VUCA, V-U-C-A. And the quote is, we will probably confront a VUCA world. And apparently VUCA 
I'm sure you already know what it stands for, but apparently it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which sounds a bit like my teenage children, to be honest. <laughs> yes, well, uh, yeah, I mean, you could make an argument that that's always the outlook for the market. It's always volatile, uncertain, complex, all the rest of it. But I dare say I can see the logic that driven to say that. We may be at a point of transition, and that's uh, obviously one where you do get a lot of volatility. Well, VUCA is going to be the new normal, obviously. So let's move on and talk about CC Japan income and growth in the Asia-Pacific region, ticker CCJI. Japan's been a bit of a tough place to be investing in equities anyway. How have they got on in their latest results? Yeah, so a good set of results, actually. These were 12 months to the end of October last year, in which time they generated an NAV total return up 24.3%. Uh, that compared to a rise of 11.9% for their benchmark. In share price terms, even stronger, actually, up 32.7%. Uh, and that was obviously a reflection of the fact their discount narrowed from about 13% into about 7%. But the revenue per share, that's interesting to watch as well. That was down a little bit, down about 6% in the period to 4.75p per share, which funnily enough was exactly the level of the dividend. The full year dividend came in at 4.75p, and that was actually up from 4.6p the previous financial year. So in other words, the dividend was covered. But uh, a little bit of chat from the investment manager. So it's Richard Aston has been responsible for this one since it was launched actually in December 2015 of Kuplum Cardiff. But interesting that that performance, that outperformance largely came from, well, certainly gearing. I mean, gearing stood at 21% at the end of the year, and that obviously contributed. But also the new positions that were established in that market volatility in 2020, they really did well in the period. And, and they were kind of more what you broadly call economic recovery plays. Also, some of the longer term holdings to banking and telecom holdings also did well. I mean, we don't think of Japan as being a place where you go looking for equity income. So what kind of uh, yield do they actually offer? This is, uh, I think, one of the few Japanese trusts that does actually put income in its name. Yes, that's right. So I've got it on a yield on a historic basis, about 2.9% at the moment. Okay. And so let's move on and talk about some uh, specialist trusts now, always of interest to people who follow the renewable energy and infrastructure and all those kind of spaces. Uh, let's kick off with Foresight Solar Fund one of the original solar funds uh, to come to the investment trust sector, ticker FSFL. What have they had to say? This was an NAV update for the end of 2021. So basically a Q4 update. It saw its NAV up 3.9% in that final quarter of last year. It rose from 104 spot 1p to 108 spot 2p. And that was a result of basically three main factors, an increase in power prices, above budget inflation and a discount rate reduction for some of its Australian assets as well. So there was a bit of chat about the level of debt that this particular fund has. Its total gearing is equivalent to about 44% of gross assets and their debt facility is being refinanced. Perhaps of more interest to shareholders is the fact that they believe they're on target to meet their 6.98p dividend. And in fact, dividend cover for 2021 came in at one spot two one times, and it's forecast to increase in 2022. Um, they're looking to announce their annual results on the 9th of March. So this is an interesting one. I mean, one of the first solar funds to come to the at that point, mainly investing in the UK, well, still mainly investing in UK solar. But, you know, before the pandemic, these things were trading at quite a big premium. They were trading, I think, getting off at sort of 10, 20% even at one point. But that's come right down. And now I think they've moved to a discount. Is that right? You're spot on. I've got them on my screen at about a 5% discount or so. 
that compares with uh, an average 4% premium over the previous 12 months. So there's definitely been a derating there. Uh, and you're right, for that whole kind of peer group, to a greater or lesser extent, we have seen ratings erode over the last six months or so. So that's obviously bad news in one way, but it's good news in terms of the potential yield you're going to get on the, on the solar funds. What is the yield on this one? How does that compare to Bluefield or some of the other uh, solar trusts that we look at regularly? Well, the yield on Foresight, uh, I've got about 6.9% on a historic basis. I mean, Bluefield, I've got that at 6.6%. And if you look at Next Energy Solar, that's coming in about 7%. So they're all higher than the average for that kind of renewable energy infrastructure subsector. Well, that's interesting. They're now beginning to look quite attractive, those yields on a relative basis. So what do you think is behind this big re-rating that's affected the original solar trusts? Yeah, I think as the renewable energy infrastructure subsector has developed, there have been some areas of it that probably have captured the imagination of investors more than others. So I think wind is an area that's obviously done very well. And I think that's seen as quite core. So, you know, we talk a lot about Greencoat UK wind. That still trades on a premium rating and offers a yield of about 5%. And we've also seen the development of other areas as well, such as the kind of battery technology or even energy impact. So the, the, the area has kind of grown on and it seems that solar has been left behind a little bit. Perhaps the total return numbers weren't quite to the level of some of the others. But you're right, they have been derated a little bit and you can see that now coming through in terms of the yield. Well, we can compare that a little bit with Octopus Renewables Infrastructure Trust, ticker O-R-I-T, which has been successful in raising money and also is trading at a premium, I'm sure. But what's their latest uh, statement? How does that compare? Again, this was a, a kind of Q4 update. So their NAV at the end of December was 102.26p. That was up 3.1p in the period. So that's, again, about 3.1%, funnily enough. And that was a reflection of energy pricing in Sweden, Poland, and the UK, particularly in the short term. So this is going to be a familiar theme now for these renewable energy infrastructure plays. Also, they did well from uh, UK inflation assumptions, and they also raised a little bit of money as well. But they're talking um, in, in terms of the dividend actually no t- uh, declared for the period that came at 1.25p. So their total dividends for their financial year for 2021 uh, came in at 5p, and that was in line with target. They're looking to increase that to five spot two four p for their financial year 2022, and that would represent an increase of 4.8%. And that's in line with CPI, so inflation, basically for the 12 months to the end of December 2021. But again, they'll publish their full results in March. So move on and talk about Syncona, ticker S-Y-N-C, a very different beast indeed. What have they had to say? Remind us who they are and what they've had to say, So. Yeah, Syncona is quite a specialist investment company. I mean, gosh, without kind of going into a history lesson, it started off as Backit, which stood for the Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust, and then changed its spots along the way and became basically almost like an incubator for developing life science companies. So uh, rather than, as we've seen with some of the other kind of growth capital plays, kind of backing companies that are up and running and just need later stage financing, um, the team at Syncona and um, they kind of rolled out of the Welcome Trust, actually. So they've got a lot of experience and pedigree in this area. They look to really back life sciences from the outset. And the performance has been probably a little bit lumpy, but they have had some undoubted successes. So this was a quarterly update to the end of December last year. The NAV was up 16% in that three-month period. And again, talking about their successes, there was a sale of a company called Gyroscope, and that's a one and a half billion pound deal. Um, that company has been sold to Novartist. And as a result of that, Syncona will benefit by a 33p per share NAV 
uplift. That deal is expected to close in the first quarter of this year. So um, this represents quite a success, as you might imagine, for the company. That was a 20% uplift to the NAV from that one deal alone. And there will obviously, in terms of the proceeds, Sincona will get about £327 million up front and the best part of, an, of about another £300 million subject to various milestones. So that was the kind of key news. But within the portfolio, there are other companies as well, Autolus, which is a listed company, uh, and a number of others as well. And they've raised additional capital in the period. And that's really the kind of theme with these life sciences companies. They do need a lot of capital to kind of get them up and running uh, until you kind of get the, the, the proof of concept and all the rest of it. But Syncona are sitting with net assets of about $1.3 billion, of which the life science portfolio represented just over $840 million at the end of 2021. Well, this particular sector, if we look at it in the round, the biotechnology and healthcare has had a pretty tough year overall over the last 12 months or so. They've all sold off quite sharply because most of them did extremely well during the first year of the pandemic. So it's a bit of you know, horses for courses in a way. But Syncona, how does its performance compare with uh, some of the other names we'll know about in the biotech and healthcare sector? Obviously, it's not directly comparable with all of them, but what's this general trend in its performance? So I think probably the first thing to note is it performs in quite a different way because it's so stock specific and it's a relatively concentrated list of holdings. So it's not a proxy for the biotech sector. It won't perform such as the the NASDAQ biotech index, for instance. So with that in mind, if you look at its returns, uh, if you look at the share price returns over the previous five years, uh, it's coming in at 37%. And that compares with, uh, I don't know, biotech growth trust, that's 33% over that period. RTW Venture hasn't been going that long. I'm just trying to think, IBT, International Biotech, that's up 44%. But with biotech growth and IBT, essentially kind of uh, IBT has got some private companies as well, but they're much more focused on the, on the listed company market. Well, I think shareholders will be hoping for some improvement in that sector in due course as the year unfolds. We'll see whether that happens or not. Let's talk now about some property results. And let's start off with Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH a trust we've had reason to talk about quite a lot in the last uh, 12 months or so. What's their latest announcement? Yeah, so this was an update basically for the final quarter of last year. So the NAV was up 0.29p in that period, of which 0.19p came from uplifts from buybacks. So again, this Civitas social housing was derated following the uh, episode with a short seller, and they've bought back 6.9 million shares in that three-month period. And obviously, that was beneficial to the NAV because they're buying those shares back at a discount. Uh, But a little bit of portfolio activity. um, They've acquired an additional property, and and they're currently assessing numerous opportunities. One suspects, though, given that they're now trading on a discount of about 14%, that they're not going to be raising new capital anytime soon. So that kind of building out the portfolio does become a lot more difficult if you think you're not going to be able to raise additional capital. Um, But they've declared a third quarterly dividend of one spot 3875p, and that was in line with their financial year target of five spot 55p. And they made the point that the portfolio benefits from inflation-adjusted long-term leases, and they're aiming to deliver returns broadly in line with inflation over long term. So everyone's talking about inflation at the moment, obviously, and if you can align yourself to inflation-linked revenue or to the good. But they also made the comment that they continue to engage with providers holding Civitas leases and helping to resolve the issues raised by the regulator of social housing. So I think to put this in context, it's fair to say that the intervention of the short seller has unfortunately had an impact on the on the trust's ability to grow. As you say, it's no longer able to issue shares, or at least won't be do that significant until it manages to get back to trading somewhere around par. 
Uh, and it's still quite a long way from doing that, I think. That, uh, if you like, shadow over the share price has, has not gone away. No, that's right. I mean, I've got around about a 14% discount that compares with an average of 2% for the previous 12 months. And, you know, if you look at that 12-month period, it's it's touched a premium rating of about 13% at one stage. So it was very much a highly rated company not that long ago and uh, with the ability to issue new shares. I mean, it's not a small company. It's a, a market cap of about £570 million pounds, and its yield is coming in about 6% on a historic basis at the moment. And as mentioned, they are using buybacks to support their, their rating. Okay, we'll move on and talk about custodian REIT, ticker C-R-E-I. And they've had a 31st of December NAV update as well. Yep. And uh, in that period, they had an NAV total return of 8.5%. And in fact, they've increased their dividend per share. That was up 10% to one spot 375p. They're targeting dividends of no less than 5.25p for the year ended 31st of March 2022. And in fact, a 5.5p dividend for their financial year 2023. So the dividend cover to date for the current financial year is about 109%. That all seems pretty positive. It's worth noting, though, that earnings per share, EPRA earnings per share for the quarter were down 19%, actually came in at 1.3. And they attributed that fall to having net gearing below a 25% level, though it was at 20%. And also their EPRA occupancy level dropping from 92% to 91%. But it's a reasonable size portfolio valued at $638 million. And in fact, those valuation increases that move their NAV up, they largely came from uh, industrial and logistics sectors. So again, that's a theme that we're seeing across all these property companies. It's also worth noting as well, and we did talk about this one at the time, but they acquired an investment company called Drum Income Plus REIT during this period, and that was at a 28% discount, and as a result, added about £7 million to their net assets. Okay, well, before we look at the ratings and so on, and the yields of these uh, property trusts, let's talk about a couple more. Let's go on to Ediston Property Investment Company, ticker EPIC. E-P-I-C. How did their numbers compare? Again, this was a, a Q4 NAV there. So the NAV was up about 1.1% in the period. So they had an NAV total return of about 2.5%, including their dividend. But the property fair value was up about 2% on a like-for-like like basis. So this portfolio is kind of evolving again. So they've made the decision to reduce exposure to office assets. And in fact, uh, they've sold a number of those and actually sold them below their valuation at the end of September and in fact, they've reduced the value of their remaining office assets with a view to selling them in due course. So the focus is very much on retail warehouses, uh, and they're focused on the redeployment there. Um, they collected about 99.9% of their rent due for the final quarter of last year. That was something that was expected to be collected. And, and the board have said that they expect the dividend will be increased in coming months, but the timing will be dependent on the redeployment of capital. So let's have a quick look at these two because they are, I suppose, broadly comparable. How do they trade? And uh, the discounts are coming a bit. Custodian, I think, has done rather better over time. But uh, tell us what the uh, current ratings of those two are. So Custodian REITs, I've got it on about a 1% premium. And you're right, it is one of the more higher rated property plays. So it's averaged about a 2% discount or so over the previous 12 months. It's got a yield on a historic base of about 4.1% at the moment. Edison Property, as mentioned, it's kind of evolving its portfolio. It has been re-rated, actually. So I've got it on between about a 4 and a 5% discount at the moment. That compares with an average discount of 15% over the previous 12 months. And I've got it on a, on a historic yield basis of about 5.7% at the moment. 
Yes, you do sometimes wonder a little bit uh, with all these property trusts all moving in the same direction towards the sector that has is doing well at the moment, whether that can last, whether they can all succeed in uh, in that space, given the valuations must be going up there. Something to watch anyway. So far, so good. Let's talk next about, still in the UK, about PRS REIT, ticker PRSR. This is one we've talked about as well. This is in the business of building houses to rent. What have they had to say? Again, so this is an update and it's looking at the second half of 2021. Uh, and during that time, they saw an increase of 5% to their EPRA NTAs, so the equivalent of their NAV effectively. And that represents a 2% growth in the expected rental value of completed homes in the portfolio uh, and some yield reduction. So just to remind people, this is focused on new build family homes, uh, very much for the private rental market. So quite differentiated. So at the end of last year, the portfolio contained nearly 4,500 completed homes with an expected rental value of about £43.5 million per annum. So that was the kind of key message there. They, they made the point that the average yield on assets in the portfolio at the end of last year came in about 4.2%. And they're expected to give their full results, their interim results anyway, for the six months during the December. They expect those to be published towards the end of March. And so that one, again, is something which has had quite a volatile time, I think, over the last couple of years. I've been following that myself, went to a discount, come back again, and is now trading somewhere around par, I guess, something like that, is it? Yeah, that's right. It's on about a 1% discount. And, uh, you know, this is one that has been on a premium, you're right, but it has equally been out at a discount as well. So on average, over the previous 12 months, it has averaged a 3% premium. So it's on a little bit of a wider rating than that at the moment. Okay, so finally on the property front, let's talk about Phoenix Spray Deutschland, ticker PSDL, which is, as you might guess, invests in property in Germany and in particular has a large portfolio in Berlin. What's the story there? Yeah, so this is like a trading update for 2021. Their property portfolio was valued at, uh, this is in euros, just short of 802 million euros at the end of December last year. During that year, there was a like-for-like valuation increase of uh, 6.3%, of which 3.7% came in the second half of the year. So there was a, a bit of chat about the Berlin property market in terms of condominiums and their outlook and a lot of talk about uh, new legislation as well, which has certainly been a factor in the past. But probably the kind of key takeaway that 97% of rents were collected in 2021, that was actually in line with 2020, but 95% of the backdated rent from the Mittendeckel, I pronounced that terribly badly, I'm sure, was collected. So yes, it's a, it was a kind of a positive update, basically. Uh, this is one that uh, Nick Greenwood of Might and Global Duties was talking about in the uh, Q&A we did quite recently. It's a specialist situation and quite interesting if you're interested in... <laughs> developments in the Berlin property market. Let's move on and finish then by talking about our music royalties sector. We've obviously talked about Neil Young and the uh, Spotify issue as far as that's affected hypnosis songs. But this week, we've heard something new from Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, the second music royalty trust to uh, to come to the UK market. Uh, we've heard a couple of things from them this week, actually. The first thing was that they announced the acquisition of a significant majority of the rights to an American rock band called Alice in Chains. Again, I'm sure someone on your music list, on your Spotify list. Apparently, Alice in Chains, also known as the AIC, which is an interesting fact. But this basic acquisition includes publishing masters and neighbouring rights of the band. That's about 94 compositions and 159 recordings. So basically, they're kind of a grunge, heavy metal band uh, that came from Seattle and are probably contemporaries of 
Nirvana and Pearl Jam. But possibly the more telling development this week was that Roundhill Music Royalty came out and said that the proceeds from their July 2021 C-share, which was uh, about 86.5 million US dollars, they're now fully invested. So there has been a spate of acquisitions, as you will recall, over the last few months. Um, That money has now been spent. And they said basically they've acquired, I think, about over 5,600 compositions at an average historic net publisher's share multiple, whatever that is, of 17.9 times. But in addition to that, the managers identified further near-term pipeline of investment opportunities exceeding £120 million. And the board is considering options to take advantage. So whether that means they'll come back to the market and try to raise new capital or look to do it through Uh, Debt financing remains to be seen. But there was some interesting commentary about the shape of the portfolio now. And I think there's definitely a feel that they're trying to differentiate themselves from hypnosis. So they've said that 77% of the income uh, generated in respect of the compositions that they've acquired are between 1950 and 2010. So why is that important? Is because you've got earnings history on these particular catalogues. So there's nothing too recent there, nothing in the last 10 or 12 years. They've also kind of tilted the portfolio to rock. 90% of the, the new acquisitions have been in, in kind of rock, and that's entirely intentional. They believe there's a greater longevity to, to rock music in general. Uh, and so now 54% of the whole portfolio is all about rock. Well, that's obviously uh, playing to a certain generation, which I'm not entirely unfamiliar, it has to be said. So we'll, we'll pass over comments about the wonders of Alice in Change, though I noticed their best-selling uh, single is called Man in the Box. I think that's quite a good one. And uh, their best-selling album is called Dirt. So uh, that's uh, something to listen to. Unfortunately, they had uh, an experience like many other rock bands of that period in that their lead singer, unfortunately, died of an over- drug overdose. In 2002, he was living the dream or, or perhaps not the nightmare. I'm not sure how you put it. But let's just talk about the uh, the C-share issue. Remind us of what happens now. So basically, they've spent all the money or committed all the money in the C-share issue. So that will then convert back, be merged effectively with the, the main investment trust shares. What's likely to be the impact of that? So the guidance on that is that the calculation date for the C-share conversion will be at the end of April, so the 29th of April, uh, with the dealings in the, in the converted shares expected to commence on the 11th of May. So there'll be a, basically a portfolio valuation, and then it'll be done on an NAV for NAV basis. You'll kind of see those two share classes merge, or basically the C-shares merge into the ordinary share class. So that will enable the fund to grow. So at the moment, I've got it on the ordinary share class alone, I've got a market cap of about £257 million. So when you put this into the mix, it'll take it somewhere north of $300 million. But presumably, if they're going to carry on growing and, and uh, building out this pipeline, they talk about all these opportunities in ageing rock stars catalogues. They'll have to get the shares to be able to issue the shares at a premium again. And when, and there has been a bit of a sell-off in the in the sector, no doubt, partly because of this whole Neil Young Spotify business. Yeah, and I think that's a fair comment. So I've got Roundhill on a discount of about 2% or so at the moment, and that compares with an average premium, probably nearer to 3% over the previous 12 months. So they have been derated a little bit. As you mentioned, hypnosis has suddenly been hit harder. Um, in fact, they've obviously got direct exposure to Neil Young. So hypnosis have averaged about a 1% premium over the previous 12 months. They now find themselves on a discount probably nearer to about 6%. Well, that brings us to the end this week. Uh, thank you, Simon, for your time and your comments. Uh, it's interesting to note quite how some of the yields in some of these specialist sectors have moved around. That is what happens, and that creates both opportunities and challenges for investors. So comparing the solar funds, for example, which have gone in one direction, and, and the music royalty funds have sold off a little bit. And meanwhile, some of the energy efficiency trusts are moving 
to uh, quite significant premiums, which should, at some point you think might get uh, might get eroded. So what are you hoping for next week, Simon, just to sign off here? Are you hoping for a better week next week or who knows? Always hoping for a better week, but it is half-term week for many people, not everybody, but for many people next week. So I suspect it's going to be a relatively quiet time. I think a few people are looking to uh, snow-covered mountains for a little bit of a reprieve, but we are about to kind of hit the earnings season. So maybe not next week or necessarily in February, but certainly as we get into March, we'll start to see more and more investment companies reporting their results as at the end of uh, 2021. So a very busy period coming up. And we'll find out, of course, whether we are indeed entering a period, a VUCA period, as you've uh, so helpfully uh, told us this week, or one of your managers has told us this week. That's all we have time for. Goodbye. Bye. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.